Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airwaves of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution and my two scholars and gentlemen with me on this fine Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms. Well, last Friday, we completed our series that we called The Dirty Dozen. That is the worst Supreme Court cases. And by the way, it was tough to pick the worst because there was plenty more than 12. But anyway, we found 12 of, of the Dirty Dozen, the cases that uh, were unconstitutional in most most instances and destructive of our form of government, particularly when they become considered precedent, which is the favorite Supreme Court way of saying, well, hey, we established this precedent. Nobody can ever change it. Now, fortunately, we are seeing in these days that there have been some changes. And we're going to talk about one of those later in this this new series, the decent dozen. That is a good dozen Supreme Court cases that got it right. That is, they got it constitutionally correct. And the encouraging thing is that when an error is made, and as we pointed out in our Dirty Dozen series, Roe v. Wade was one of those tremendous errors, that error can be corrected. In this case, it was corrected by uh, the Dobbs case just recently here. So we're going to look at a decent dozen because it's encouraging when the Supreme Court does express opinions that are in tune with our founders' view of law and government, that are in tune with the actual text of the Constitution itself. And we know the founders' view is very simply put in the Declaration of Independence. Their view of government was this. There is a creator God. And secondly, our rights come from him and from him alone. And therefore, thirdly, the only purpose for human civil government is to protect and secure God-given rights. Well, on that basis of their view of law and government, we're going to dive into Norton v. Shelby County, uh, Supreme Court case all the way back in 1886, and uh, discover what they express that is in tune with the founders' view of law and government that is in tune with our United States Constitution as it was ratified. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Norton v. Shelby County? Well, Norton versus Shelby County in Tennessee is hardly on the lips of the typical United States citizen. Most have never heard of it. It doesn't appear on Business Insider's list of 46 landmark Supreme Court cases that changed American life as we knew it. And yet it establishes a precedent for the Supreme Court of the United States to hear a case that might otherwise be constrained to a state's judicial system. The Supreme Court's jurisdiction is fundamentally defined in Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states citizens, or subjects. A casual reading of this section of the Constitution would deny the Supreme Court of the United States appellate jurisdiction in Norton versus Shelby County. 
because it appears to involve an individual, Norton, and a subdivision of the state of Tennessee, Shelby County. After all, the judicial power of the Supreme Court of the United States extends to controversies between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. None of that wording seems to describe Norton versus Shelby County. But consider the initial wording in Article 3, Section 2. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. The question then is whether the subsequent language in Article 3, Section 2 trumps the initial language or if the subsequent statements are simply specific examples of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. James Madison uh, James Madison's comments in The Federalist Number 41 seem to give some guidance, but the idea of an enumeration of particulars which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning and can have no other uh, effect than to confound and mislead is an absurdity. Madison was countering the idea that a list of particulars neither explained nor qualified the general meaning. Promoters of the general welfare justification for extending the powers of the central government were dismissing the list of federal legislative powers in Article 1, Section 8 as inclusive. But both parties in this debate had a point. Madison's was that those who wished to extend the power of the federal government could not just use the undefinable term general welfare as justification. It is doubtful that Madison would have objected to the federal government being involved in a 10-year census being conducted as required by Article 1, Section 2. His objection seems to be against expanding federal powers beyond Article 1, Section 8 and powers implied elsewhere in the Constitution. We gain further insight into the division of powers into federal and state domains in Amendment 9, initiated by Madison. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice again that the scope is the entire Constitution, not just a specific article or section of the Constitution. With these examples as background, consider the initial wording of Article 3, Section 2. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. The initial statement suggests that the subsequent jurisdictional statements are meant to be explicit examples, but the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is not meant to be constrained to those examples as long as the case arises under the Constitution. But how does a case like Norton versus Shelby County arise under the Constitution of the United States? We need to review the syllabus of the case to determine that. This is the background as recorded in the case syllabus at Cornell University's Legal Information Institute. This is an action upon 29 bonds of $1,000 each, alleged to be bonds of Shelby County, Tennessee, issued on the 1st of March, 1869, and payable on the 1st of January, 1873, with interest from January 1, 1869 at 6% per annum, payable annually on the surrender of matured interest coupons attached, 
and three coupons of $60 each, issued under and by virtue of Section 6 of the Act of the Legislature of the State of Tennessee, passed February 25th, 1867, amended on the 12th day of February 1869, and by authority conferred upon the county commissioners of Shelby County by Section 25 of an act passed March 9th, 1869, or 1867, I should say. <clears throat> the funds were to be transmitted to the Mississippi River Railroad Company to prepare a roadbed and lay track in Shelby County. The bonds were issued by the county commissioners under the authority of the acts above recited, transferable by delivery and redeemable in six years at the rate of $50,000 a year, commencing January 1, 1870. The issue before the Supreme Court of the United States was the plaintiff, Norton, contends, one, that the commissioners, by whose direction the bonds were issued and whose pre president signed them, were lawful officers of Shelby County and authorized under the acts mentioned in the heading of the bonds to represent and bind the county by the subscription to the railroad company and that the bonds issued were therefore its legal obligations. Two, that if the commissioners were not officers de jure of the county, they were officers de facto. And as such, their action in making the subscription and issuing the bonds is equally binding upon the county. And three, that the action of the commissioners, whatever their want of authority, has been ratified by the county. <clears throat> The defendant, Shelby County, countered that, one, that the commissioners were not lawful officers of the county, and that there was no such office in Tennessee as that of county commissioner, two, that there could not be any such de facto officers, as there was no such office known to the laws, and therefore the subscription was made, and the bonds were issued without authority, and are void, and three, that the action of the commissioners was never ratified and was incapable of ratification by the county. So what was the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States? Concerning the facts of the case, the Supreme Court of the United States accepted the facts as reviewed by the Supreme Court of Tennessee, that from an early period in the history of the state, indeed from a period anterior to the adoption of her Constitution of 1796, to the passage of the Act of March 9, 1867, the administration of the government in local matters in each county was lodged in a county court, or quarterly court, as it was sometimes called, composed of justices of the peace elected in its different districts. The Constitution of 1796 recognizes that court as an existing tribunal, and the Constitution of 1834 pres prescribes the duties of the justices of the peace composing it. This county court alone had the power to make a county subscription to the Mississippi River Railroad Company to issue bonds in the amount, uh, to issue bonds for the amount and to levy taxes for its payment unless the Act of March 9, 1867 invested the Board of Commissioners with that authority. That act created the board and provided that it should consist of five persons, residents of the county for not less than two years, each to serve for a period of five years, and until his successor should be elected and qualified. 
The 25th section vested in it all the powers and duties then possessed by the quarterly court of the county, and in addition thereto the, the authority to describe to subscribe stock and railroads, which the county court of Shelby County has been authorized by general and special law to subscribe, and under the same conditions and restrictions, and to represent such stock in all elections for uh, directors and provide for payment of subscriptions as made. <clears throat> However, the case syllabus notes the validity of this act superseding the county court was at once assailed by, uh, as in violation of the constitution of the state. Within a month after its passage, William Walker and other justices of the peace of the county, in their official character and as citizens and taxpayers, filed a bill in chancery in the name of the state at their relation against the commissioners appointed, alleging that they had usurped and were unlawfully exercising the powers and functions of the justices. The chancellor dismissed the bill. However, the Supreme Court of Tennessee reversed the decree and perpetually enjoined the defendants from acting as a board of commissioners. It held that the act creating the board and conferring on the commissioners appointed by the governor, the powers of justices of the peace of the county court, was unconstitutional and void, that the county court was one of the institutions of the state, recognized in the Constitution, that the powers conferred by it upon the justices of the peace in their collective capacity were intended to be exercised by that court, and that the power to tax for purposes of the county could not, by any special or local law, be taken from the justices of the peace as a county court and conferred upon local tribunals of particular counties composed of commissioners appointed by the governor. The case was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, which stated this opinion upon the construction of the Constitution and laws of a state. This court, as a general rule, follows the decisions of her highest court unless they, ref they conflict with or impair the efficacy of some principles of the federal constitution or of a federal statute or a rule of commercial or general law. In these cases in the state of Tennessee, no principle of the federal constitution or of any federal law is invaded and no rule of general or commercial law is disregarded. It added, <clears throat> but it is contended that if the act creating the board was void and the commissioners were not officers de jure, they were nevertheless officers de, de facto, and that <clears throat> the acts of the board as a de facto court are binding upon the county. This contention is met by the fact that there can be no officer, either de jure or de facto, if there is no office to fill. The Supreme Court of the United States further added, an unconstitutional act is not a law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. It concluded, we are satisfied that none of the positions taken by the plaintiff, Norton, can be sustained. Wow. What are the implications today? The Supreme Court of the United States could have refused to hear the case, 
but chose to consider if there were a conflict with or impairment of the efficacy of the some principle of the federal constitution or of a federal statute or a rule of commercial or general law. It found none and issued an opinion affirming the opinion of the Supreme Court of Tennessee. But suppose that in another case, it had found there were a conflict with or impairment of the efficacy of some principle of the federal constitution. Does such a case currently exist? According to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Article 7, Section 14, only four specific conditions are allowed as the rule that all votes must be cast at public polling places. Ignoring their constitution, the members of the General Assembly passed Pennsylvania Act 77, which became law on October 31st, 2019, granting the privilege of voting in absentia to all citizens. The constitutionality of this act was challenged in the state's Commonwealth Court, which had original jurisdiction. That court found Pennsylvania Act 77 to be unconstitutional, but the opinion was reversed in the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth. The case has not been further appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. The history of this case appears to parallel Norton versus Shelby County in that a state Supreme Court opinion concerning a conflict of a legislative body with its constitution is being questioned. In the case of Norton versus Shelby County, the Supreme Court of the United States was even willing to review the Supreme Court of Tennessee's findings when the state court had determined that the state's le legislature had acted unconstitutionally. The Pennsylvania case was even more clear-cut. One could match the wording of the state's constitution with Act 77 to see the contradiction. In this case, the state Supreme Court had clearly ignored the state's constitution. Norton versus Shelby County can be criticized for not identifying a specific pr provision in the Constitution of the United States that applied. Article 4, Section 4 was certainly a candidate. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Unfortunately, the Constitution is deficient in not defining terms like Republican form of government. At least three concepts are obvious, however. One, representation, two, separation of powers, and three, a system of justice based upon adherence to the state's constitution. Typically, new states are required to acquire the approval of their constitutions before being admitted to the United States. This did not apply in the creation of the original United States, of which Pennsylvania was a founding state. But Article 4, Section 2 suggests that respect for constitution for constitutions is fundamental to the rule of law. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Among those privileges, citizens of all states are entitled to the protection of their state's constitution. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania should not be an exception. In summary, if the Supreme Court of the United States was justified in hearing Norton versus Shelby County, it is justified in hearing a case based upon the unconstitutionality of Pennsylvania Act 77. Mm -hmm. Phil, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I, I like that because there's an application when we delve into the history here of the Supreme Court and the history of what decisions were made in the past. Here we have 
a case that applies very clearly. And, that, and again, that's one of the values of looking at the good Supreme Court cases, what we're calling the decent dozen. And again, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the reason why, even though the court didn't spell it out, but the reason why they should and did hear Norton v. Shelby County was Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. And as you point out, one thing at least is true of that. That means the state must adhere to their own constitution. If they have a constitution, they had better obey that constitution. And if they do not obey their own state constitution, well, then the Supreme Court can enter into that and basically discipline the state, uh, forcing the state back uh, to obedience to its own constitution. So one of the things that took place in the history of this case, and by the way, it's a little bit interesting. You see uh, this time period of, of the United States, railroads were the big, big business. This this was, you know, kind of the Silicon Valley of the day. It was the expansive growing business. And every part of the United States was very concerned to get railroad tracks coming through their county because they knew the future of their economic well-being as a county, the farmers getting goods to market and uh, people manufacturing things to be get, get able to get them to the city. And, and so having a railroad going through your county was extremely important, which is why, uh, you know, Shelby County did what they did, but they did it unconstitutionally. And the interesting thing that took place because there was a change in Tennessee's constitution uh, on the 5th of May, 1870, 1870, a new constitution came into force in Tennessee, and it contained the, these following provisions. The credit of no county, city, town, or town shall be given or loaned to or in aid of any person, company, association, or corporation except upon election to be first held by the qualified voters of such county, city, town, and the assent of three-fourths of the votes cast at the said election. Nor shall any county, city, or town become a stockholder with others in any company, association, or corporation except upon a like election and the assent of the like majority. So the state constitution of 1870 required the voters to weigh in on this and three quarters had to have a super majority that would vote to have this kind of financial transaction take place of buying stock in the you know Mississippi Mississippi River Railroad Company as they did and the the other part of this is because actually the decision was made to purchase those was purchased before but the constitution that was enacted in 1870 said this all laws and ordinances now in force and in use in the state not inconsistent with the constitution shall continue in force and use until they expire or be altered or repealed by the legislature but Ordinance contained in any former constitution or schedule thereunto are hereby abrogated. And so what it was saying is if our new constitution prohibits this action and this action was done beforehand, before this constitution, basically that action is no longer to be functioning. And in fact, a large part of the payments of the principal as well as the interest uh, in the, these uh, stock purchases for this railroad stock, a major part of the principal and interest uh, was made after the new constitution came into force in May 1870. And so in a sense, the uh, county was operating 
in violation of the state constitution of Tennessee, even though initially they started out in compliance with the existing constitution. But by May of 1870, the payments being made and and the structure should have been halted. And that's where the challenge came in. So, you know, there's there's multiple layers here of of violations. But the the big picture to get is that, uh, you know, Shelby County decided that it wanted – access to railroads by having railroad track laid in their county and that they were going to accomplish that by buying stock in this railroad and the money to gain the stock, of course, was ultimately going to come out of the pockets of the taxpayers. And in fact, you could say that this kind of action on the part of Shelby County was foreseen by those who were crafting the Constitution of Tennessee of 1870, and they stopped it. They said, we don't like this action. You know, a group of influential businessmen, uh, you know, they, they conspire together and they get together and they form what they want to accomplish. And instead of going to the voters and saying, voters, you're going to have to spend all this money. You're not only going to have to pay for the stock, then you're going to have to pay for the interest on the bonds that were created to buy this stock because Shelby County didn't have the money sitting in its vault to uh, directly purchase the the stocks. They had to borrow the money and pay interest on the money, 6% interest being paid and all that. So if that was going to happen, the new constitution says, now nah, we're not go- going to allow some powerful, influential people to basically borrow money on the credit of the people of the county unless the people of the county, three quarters of the voters of the county say, yes, we can enter into this agreement. Yes, we are willing to pay for these bonds and to pay 6% interest. If the voters didn't approve of this spending of this money, the new constitution protected the voters from having a cabal of, uh, of powerful people like in Shelby County uh, who decided, in spite of the fact that there was no provision in the state constitution of Tennessee to create county commissioners, they were simply going to create county commissioners, which is what they did. And so the structure of uh, their county commission was actually a violation of the existing constitution when uh, they decided to form uh, their uh, Shelby County commissioners. So it's an interesting detail here of, of what takes place. And by the way, you realize all this uh, fits into the history of America with the, uh, you know, the rail barons, the mighty titans who uh, uh, wielded enormous financial power during the era when rail was the means of transportation all across the United States for both people as well as goods and services. So uh, this was all part of that, uh, you know, these people who became extremely wealthy through deals like this where, oh, hey, we're going to we're going to get Shelby County to uh, fork the money up so that a railroad can be built through their county. And uh, wait a minute, shouldn't it be private industry that funds this? After all, uh, the you know, in this case, the Mississippi Rail- River Railroad Company is going to be the profit. It's going to make profit off of this uh, venture. So why should the people be forced into this deal? And by the way, this should remind us of what is happening today, which are things that are called public-private partnership. And every time you hear that public private partnership, you ought to think in your mind, what they're really talking about is a form of fascism. That's right. Fascism is where civil government, big government usually, and uh, 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 corporations, so big government and big corporations get together in an agreement that is going to actually maybe fleece 
the people, but is going to be certainly a huge advantage to the big business is going to get special privileges, kind of monopoly like privileges. And uh, this is going to be funded by the people and the people actually don't get to uh, weigh in on it. It's the, the public private partnership, the elected officials and the people never get to say anything about it at all. Well, this kind of was an early form of that. That wisely, those who crafted the 1870 Tennessee Constitution, they recognize that's a bad deal for the people. The people should not be forced to pay for something that these uh, people who basically elected themselves, appointed themselves, or had the governor appoint them, who had their political connections work in their favor to grant them a position of power. This is so by the, the you know, the Mississippi Railroad River, uh, River Railroad Company could profit immensely at the public expense. These are the uh, the kind of mercantilist things that we have talked about numerous times. Uh, and uh, Phil has identified it again and again. And here it is, where you're using the civil government to help one particular industry, one particular uh, company, in this case, uh, uh, a railroad company that's going to build track through uh, the Shelby County. Now, of course, we understand why Shelby County was doing what they're doing. They wanted to ensure that the railroad track came through their county. But that's really not the function of civil government. That's not its job. That's not what it does uh, when it follows uh, what our design, the design of our founders was, that we want a limited civil government, a civil government that actually protects our God-given rights and protects our finances. In this case, the people of Shelby County were being put on the hook financially by people who were not elected. These commissioners who were not even properly in power, who got to make the decision to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to go buy this. I think it was twenty nine thousand dollars of railroad stock uh, and we're going to we don't have the money. So we're going to borrow on the credit of the people of Shelby County and we're going to force them to pay six percent interest on this money that's borrowed and so on and so forth. All of that. I believe the Supreme Court rightly said this is a wrong decision on many heads, but the most important head is it's a violation of the Constitution of the state of Tennessee. And so the Supreme Court decision that I think needs to be remembered and highlighted from this case is this statement that they add. An unconstitutional act is not law. Let's pause right there. That is, if somebody spills ink on a piece of paper and they call it law, if it violates the Constitution, in this case, the Constitution of the state of Tennessee, but it's certainly also true if it violates the Constitution of the United States, an unconstitutional act is not a law. In fact, we shouldn't talk about it as if it were a law. It's simply ink that has been spilled on a pink piece of paper. It is not law at all. So they go on to say an unconstitutional act is not a law. It confers no rights because if it's not a law, it has nothing to do with our God-given rights and therefore cannot be called a right. You know, the commissioners couldn't say, we have a right to borrow this money. We have a right to force the people of Shelby County to pay the principal and the interest and so on. So, no, it, an unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. That there, In other words, it was an error being made, no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. And that's what there was a clear violation here. They had created these offices of county commissioners without the Constitution permitting them to do so. 
They just said, we're going to do this. We're going to create these commissioners, kind of like, uh, you know, Obama started creating czars. Remember that, you know, czar for this and a czar for that, you know, and that's been continued by uh, other presidents who followed his example, just creating willy nilly out of thin air. We're, we're going to create these czars. Well, no, it affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. In other words, it's ink spilled on a piece of white paper that has absolutely no meaning any more than an ink blot, a black ink spilled on a white piece of paper. Let me read that whole statement again, because this is what we ought to take away from this decision. And remember, every time uh, Congress or our own state legislature or, or even our county council passes a piece of so-called legislation, that legislation must be evaluated by the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution for federal issues, state constitution for state issues. It must be evalu- evaluated by the Constitution. And if it is not constitutional, an unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. And Phil, you're absolutely right to say that this case is not spoken of or heard of. And I'd like to ask Mike if you would be willing to answer the question, did this case ever come up in your training in law school? And the reason I ask that is because this case directly goes against the way the system is being operated today. Congress passes all kinds of unconstitutional law every day. You know, whether it's the Affordable Care Act that we talked about last week or any number of things that they're passing and they're treating them as law. And then the executive branch goes around enforcing them as if they are law. Same thing happens on the state level. But this states that that's not the case at all, which is why I'm curious, Mike, if this case was at all looked at uh, uh, in law school, because I think it should be one of the premier cases that reminds law students that when Congress or when the state legislature, when a county council spills ink on a piece of paper, that thing cannot be and must not be called law unless it passes the constitutional test. Is it actually constitutional? Because... And I repeat it again because it's so important to remember, Norton v. Shelby County, an unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. Well, Mike, uh, why don't you share with us your thoughts on uh, Norton v. Shelby County? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. I'll be honest, I don't remember discussing this case specifically, but I do remember discussing the principle that an unconstitutional law is not law. We probably more often recall the statement from Marbury versus Madison that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void. The problem is, practically speaking, how do we determine whether a law that was passed is constitutional? It gets litigated, and then it's in the hands of the judges. And if I know my buddies on this show at all, we don't want things in the hands of the judges. But otherwise, how would we determine what is constitutional versus unconstitutional? The legislature passed the law, so presumably they thought, or at least would be willing to claim, that it is constitutional. And if you let the legislature vote a second round as to whether it's constitutional, what do you think the result would be? Now, this case presents us with a bit of a conundrum. 
It reminds me of the strange nature of expungements. In criminal cases, when you get a true expungement, the case legally never happened. I say that with the caveat that some states have a process that they call an expungement, which is not a true expungement. Because with a true expungement, it legally never happened and the government is supposed to destroy the records, remove all data, and the defendant can legally say that it never happened on government forms. For involuntary mental health treatment or involuntary commitments, you can get an expungement in Pennsylvania by showing that it was void ab initio, which translates to void from the beginning. So basically, the commitment was invalid in the first place. It is deemed to have had no legal effect from the time that it happened. It was never valid, so it was never a commitment. A colleague of mine often says that an expungement is a legal fiction. He's right in a sense, because we say it never legally happened, but in reality, it did happen. But because of some reason recognized under the law, we basically pretend it never happened, and we are very committed to our game of make-believe. Now in Norton vs. Shelby, we have that same sort of principle. As described in a later case called Wainwright vs. National Dairy Products, they say, quote, in Norton versus Shelby, the United States embraced the Blackstone view that judges merely discovered the law and that in reversing prior decisions, judges were merely discovering what the true law had always been. As the court put it, an unconstitutional law, and they quote Norton, confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is, in legal contemplation, as inoperative as though it had never been passed, end quote. The Wainwright Court continued, This view is no longer the law, and where equity and circumstance warrant judicial decisions may be given solely prospective treatment. Citing Linkletter versus Walker and Simpson Oil Company, the, co the court goes on to say, We should be no more willing to give retroactive effect of a legislative statute than to the judicial overruling of a prior decision. The presence of a statute is as much an operative fact as a prior judicial ruling. Keep in mind that Wainwright is not a Supreme Court case, it is a lower court case, and it's not binding. It came out of the United States District Court, Northern District of Georgia, in 1969. But it does cite Supreme Court cases that it claims are the basis for its reasoning. One of those cases being Linkletter versus Walker. And in that case, the court reasoned, quote, At common law, there was no authority for the proposition that judicial decisions made law only for the future. Blackstone stated the rule that the duty of the court was not to pronounce a new law, but to maintain and expound the old one. This court followed that rule in Norton versus Shelby, holding that unconstitutional action confers no rights, imposes no duties, and all of the additional things that I said just moments ago. The court went on, the judge, rather than being the creator of the new law, was but its discoverer. In the case of the overruled decision, Wolf versus People of the State of Colorado, here, it was thought to be only a failure at true discovery and was consequently never the law. While overruling one, MAP, was not new law, but an application of what is, and theretofore, had been the true law. On the other hand, Austin maintained that judges do in fact do something more than discover law. They make it interstitially, 
by filling in with judicial interpretation the vague, indefinite, or generic statutory or common law terms that alone are but the empty crevices of the law. Implicit in such an approach is the admission when a case is overruled that the earlier decision was wrongly decided. However, rather than being erased by the later overruling decision, it is considered as an existing juridical fact until overruled, and intermediate cases finally decided under it are not to be disturbed. The Blackstonian view ruled English jurisprudence and cast its shadow over our own as evidenced by Norton versus Shelby. However, some legal philosophers continued to insist that such a rule was out of tune with actuality largely because judicial repair off-time did work hardship to those who had trusted to its existence. The Austinian view gained some acceptance over a hundred years ago when it was decided that although legislative divorces were illegal and void, those previously granted were immunized by a prospective application of the rule of the case. And as early as 1863, this court drew on the same concept in a case. The Supreme Court of Iowa had repeatedly held that the Iowa legislature had the power to authorize municipalities to issue bonds to aid the construction of railroads. After the city of Dubuque had issued such bonds, the Iowa Supreme Court reversed itself and held that the legislature lacked such power. In that case, which arose after the overruling decision, this court held that the bonds issued under the apparent authority granted by the legislature were collectible. However, we may regard the late overruling case in Iowa as affecting the future. It can have no effect upon the past. The theory was, as Mr. Justice Holmes stated, that a change of judicial decision after a contract has been made on the faith of an earlier one, the other way is a change of the law. And in 1932, Mr. Justice Cordoza in Northern Rye Company versus Sunburst Oil and Refining Company applied the Austinian approach in denying a federal constitutional due process attack on the prospective application of a decision of the Montana Supreme Court. He said that a state may make a choice for itself between the principle of forward operation and that of relation backward. Um, Mr. Justice Cordoza based the rule on the avoidance of injustice or hardship, citing a long list of state and federal cases supporting the principle that the courts had the power to say that decisions, though later overruled, are law nonetheless for intermediate transactions. Eight years later, Chief Justice Hughes in Chicago County Drainage Distribution versus Baxter State Bank, in discussing the problem, made it clear that the broad statements of Norton must be taken with qualifications. He reasoned that the actual existence of the law prior to the determination of unconstitutionality is an operative fact and may have consequences which cannot justly be ignored. The past cannot always be erased by a new judicial declaration. He laid down the rule that the effect of the subsequent ruling as to invalidity may have to be considered in various aspects. Now, understand that this is a Supreme Court case, and although it's disagreeing with certain aspects of Norton versus Shelby, does not overtly overrule it. What you saw in the Wainwright case, that lower court case previously discussed, is that they relied on this case, saying that th this case, the Linkletter case, impliedly overruled Norton versus Shelby. It is an interesting prospect and an interesting principle, because at the end of the day, 
when you're determining whether a law is constitutional versus unconstitutional, you have judges involved one way or another. And essentially, uh, if you have the judges with the ability to say that this law was void ab initio, as we said, it was invalid in the first place, it was void from the start, then they can negate the legislature by making such a ruling. I'm not sure exactly what the difference would be if they're able to negate it moving forward, but not backward. Uh, But ultimately, uh, it leaves an awful lot of power in the hands of the judges, which I'm sure my esteemed colleagues aren't too thrilled about. Uh, But I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing to have fewer unconstitutional laws on the books because there are far too many laws to begin with. Thank you so much, Mike. Again, it's always a pleasure to have someone who is trained in the law share with us what uh, we're just we're just lay people. Phil and I, in a sense of the legal profession, we're studying these things, understanding the English language, trying to comprehend uh, what it is that our Constitution says and then what the Supreme Court says about our Constitution. But our theory, our philosophy is always this. It is the Constitution and the text of the Constitution as it was intended by those who wrote it. That is, its original meaning as it was understood by those who wrote it and those who ratified it. That is, in each of the 13 states that ultimately ratified the Constitution originally. That's the meaning of what our Constitution says, not what the courts say about it. And so when we have the case like this, Norton v. Shelby County, we have the, the court, in my view, affirming that view that the Constitution, the text of the Constitution, as it was originally understood, originally ratified, uh, that is the, the governing text, not what somebody years later says. We think we've got a better idea than, uh, you know, James Madison and the others that were uh, crafting the Constitution. We've got a better idea about that. No, no, no. That's uh, the courts do not have the freedom to make it up on their own. They must follow the text of the Constitution as it was originally intended and ratified. Phil, what's your thoughts on, on this? Pastor David, you you described uh, this period as the age of railroads, which I think is very, very interesting. And we get some insight from the election of 1860 that brought Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. Now, who was Abraham Lincoln? Uh, He had been a a two-year representative from the state of Illinois in in the federal government, uh, but otherwise had no experience, was not particularly successful uh, in the federal government uh, at at all. Uh, what did he do in the, the meantime? He had become the most important lobbyist for the railroad industry. And in fact, when he left, uh, I think it was in Baltimore, uh, when he left uh, Baltimore Station uh, to uh, assume the presidency, he was officially still a lobbyist. Now, there's another interesting story here about his connections with the railroad. Uh, The railroad could have gone through St. Joseph, Missouri, or could have gone through Omaha, Nebraska, or something like that. Uh, And basically, uh, Lincoln was supposed to have had some some ownership of land in Omaha, so he benefited by the redirection of the railroad away from St. Joseph and through Omaha. I don't know how much truth there is to that story, but uh, one thing we should recognize is that the we all have uh, feet of clay uh, when we, we assess uh, people as heroes, superheroes uh, in the case of Lincoln. Uh, you know, everybody has their their downside, if you will. Uh, 
One other thing I think we should get from this is that there's a parallel with the 1913 Federal Reserve Act in which uh, a government entity is created, just like in, in uh, Shelby County. Uh, in Norton versus Shelby County, it was the, ca- uh, the county commissioners. In 1913, it was the central bank system called the Federal Reserve. Oh, interesting comparison. And interesting as well, because like in Shelby County, those commissioners were not legitimate. That was an unconstitutional act that they, by which they created those commissioners, the county court. Uh, that was the system of county government uh, in the Constitution at that point in time. So rather than following their Constitution, they just threw their Constitution out and they created their own, uh, you know, their own commissioners. And those commissioners turned around and said, oh, we got an idea of how to spend the people's money <laughs> without asking the people, which is why the new Constitution of 1870 required the people weigh in a supermajority. Three quarters of the people uh, say, yes, we are willing to spend this money before any any such funds can be expended. So but the interesting case in, in the Federal Reserve is that it's not even a federal agency. It's not part of the federal government. It's not accountable. In fact, uh, Representative Ron Paul, year after year when he was in Congress, called for the auditing of the Federal Reserve, and they refused. And they said, we don't, we're not accountable to you. We don't have to answer to you. We don't have to open our books to Congress to have them look at us at all because we're not federal. And that's correct. They're not federal. And by the way, they have no reserves either. They just uh, print money out of thin air. But that's an illustration of what happens when you allow uh, the legislative body to go willy nilly about creating things that are unconstitutional. And by the way, the Federal Reserve is clearly unconstitutional because they have control over the creation of money. And technically, uh, they print it supposedly on paper, but uh, obviously they do it by computer where there's no printing involved whatsoever. And that's a violation of our Constitution, which only gives the power for uh, that monetary function to Congress, that Congress can coin money. It never says print money, only coin. And, and the coins referred to are gold and silver because, as the, as the Article 6 says, it's only gold and silver that are payment for debt. So it has to be gold and silver. It has to be controlled and regulated by Congress directly just to hand off those powers our Constitution gives to Congress to hand them off to uh, something that's not even a government agency. Is a a crime of uh, a deep, deep uh, significance for our country. And we have suffered since 1913 as uh, the Federal Reserve, an entity, a foreign entity owned by people whose names are not even revealed to us. So some foreign people own this and they have proceeded to rob the American people. The buying power of the dollar has declined by about 96 percent which means since 1913, they have been stealing from the American people uh, to the tune now of, of, of over 96%. And that's the reason why inflation is taking place today, that uh, illegal uh, transaction and a corrupt transaction taking place between Congress and this agency, not even an agency, this group they authorized to create uh, money. So what happened in Shelby County? Uh, is a significant illustration of what has happened to us uh, ever since 1913. You know, I, I imagine there are listeners out there who are, are comparing my comments today, which really uh, encourage or the expansion of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States. They're probably saying, hey, wait a second. I thought you said on oh, such and such, and many dates, by the way, uh, that uh, the 
Supreme Court's uh, powers ought to be constrained. Absolutely. I, I do believe that. But I, I also believe that we must live under a system of law that constitutions are primarily uh, their purpose is primarily to defend the citizen against government. And therefore, in situations like this, if you strip away that protection, you are harming the citizens of the United States. So uh, I think that we have to separate the issue of uh, appeal above the the, uh, the Supreme Court, which uh, I I believe in. I believe that the one of the big problems that we have is that uh, the the court today is considered to be infallible. That once it makes a decision, that the decision cannot be reversed unless the court itself reverses it. And I think there's something wrong there. There has to be a another level of of uh, appeal that is closer to the states. Uh, that created the uh, the union, and also to the people, but they're separate issues. Mm-hmm, indeed, and and Phil, you have spoken many times on the whole idea of mercantilism and the danger of that, and and really its destructive power, which is underlying uh, our war for independence, whereby we separated from Great Britain. One of those factors, and and indeed something that was resisted by uh, presidents like Thomas Jefferson and, and others who were uh, of the mindset that no, we don't want the government involved in the mercantilist uh, sense. Could you explain that to? Our audience again, so that people understand how what we're seeing there with Shelby uh, County was uh, part of the mercantilist uh, uh, operating procedures. Well, you you basically have parties within the government, um, and you have parties outside of the government uh, conspiring, if you will, cooperating, if you if you wish to use the the softer term. But the basic idea is that. Uh, as you pointed out very, very uh, accurately, I believe, uh, the idea of, of uh, fascism is just a later version of uh, something that was called mercantilism in the 17th and 18th centuries. Our nation was founded on the principle of tossing out mercantilism. Uh, the British system was a mercantilist system. Uh, as much as we hear the the issue of the war uh, of independence being uh uh, taxation, no taxation without representation. Now, that that really was not the case. Uh, if you look at Barbara Tuckman's uh, uh, The March of Folly, she has a great section on the British losing North America. And basically, she identifies the fact that it was a corrupt mercantilist government where everybody was seeking favors of the gov- government. The government would hand out these licenses and gain revenue from them. And you had this this corrupt bargain between private interests and the the government. And who loses in that situation? Well, the people lose. They're the ones who have to pick up the price for for the shoddy goods that uh, uh, are protected by mercantilist governments. And so the, the Shelby County example was really one where the people didn't have any choice about uh, – buying stock, in this case, in the Mississippi River Railroad Company, they were forced into purchasing it 
and paying for it and paying 6% interest, which had they had the opportunity to vote on it, which the state constitution of 1870 required, they may have said no way. In fact, the state constitution required three quarters of the people who voted to vote for it because they know, wait a minute, if you're going to be spending the money of the people, you better be absolutely certain the people are fully behind the expenditures of those funds. And while you might say for the greater good of Shelby County, it would be good to have a railroad going through that county and it's going to benefit, you know, true. But if the people decide, nah, we don't care for that benefit or we don't care to pay for that benefit out of our pockets, they should have the right to do that. There should be uh, not be some people who are politically connected above the average person in the, in the county that gets to make that decision for them. And that's ultimately what, what you have with, with the mercantilist system. You have uh, a, a civil government in collusion with big business, and those two together are making decisions that the people, the average people, never get to weigh in on and have no ability to make it. But it does wind up costing the citizen. In this case, the citizens are going to have to pay uh, not only the interest on uh, these bonds, but they're going to have to pay the $29,000 that were the bonds themselves. So $29,000, 6% interest over all those years. You can add up how much money that is for the people of Shelby County. And so if the people are going to pay for it, there shouldn't be somebody else making the decision. The people need to be able to make that decision themselves. And they were being deprived of that. And I'm so glad that the Supreme Court of the United States got it right and said, no, 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 that is not permissible. That is a violation of the Constitution of the state of Tennessee. And to to ensure, as Article 4 of our Constitution gives this job to the federal government to ensure that we have Republican governments functioning in the states, that is their job. They should be watchdogs over uh, actions on the part of, uh, of uh, state governments that are violative of the Constitution of that state. We don't have to look very far. Just the COVID insanity of 2020 and what followed there. Almost every state in the union, with few exceptions, I think South Dakota was one good exception. There might have been one other. Every state in the union violated their constitutions and abused the people in their state instead of protecting the people in their state and overreached their powers. And what happened? They got away with it. In fact, usually they got reelected to office and went on to continue that abuse of power. Any last comments, Phil? Yeah, I think the alternative to the mercantilist system is the free market system. And basically what that does is to distribute decision making uh, to the individual consumer and to the individual investor. Uh, the, the counter to that was Henry Clay's American system, which was very un-American, by the way. Uh, and it, that system was embraced by Abraham Lincoln, incidentally. But the basic idea here is that uh, – the, the free market system is the most democratic uh, system that is available for uh, decision-making. And it all also is the one system that has proven to produce consistently uh, human prosperity. Hmm. And, and you're right, because the interesting thing about it is that you don't even have to be a registered voter to participate in the free market system. <laughs> you just have to have money in your pocket that you're willing to spend. You get to choose where that money goes because it's your money. Uh, and the, the government should have nothing to say about controlling whether you can spend it on this or that or what you choose to. And so 
all the people spending money where they choose to are basically casting a vote for one company versus another company. The mercantilist system or the monopoly system basically says the government's going to get involved in that transaction. It's going to force you to spend money in a certain way other than what you choose. And I think worst case uh, we have recently is the uh, Affordable Care Act or what some people call Obamacare, where we were being forced at gunpoint, so to speak, to buy health insurance if we didn't want to have that health insurance, we had no option. Well, that's the uh, Norton v. Shelby County case, uh, the first of our decent dozen. We invite you to join us next Friday morning as we continue the Supreme Court cases known as the decent dozen here at We the People, the Constitution Matters.